0: Sometimes what we bring to the text of the Torah in our holy interaction, our holy intimacy of reading, is our intellectual curiosity, or sometimes it's our playful creativity, artistic and otherwise, and sometimes it's our thirst for the wisdom of tradition. But in the Pesach Seder, we are commanded to see ourselves as if we ourselves came out of Mitzrayim. Derived as a holy mitzvah from chapter 12 of Shemot itself, this forms the basis of the four children that we see ourselves as having been redeemed, as this connects to the central declaration of the first roots of the Temple of Old, which forms the core of the Seder text. This year, with hail falling around us while we shelter in our homes during the Seder, the plague of the coronavirus outside our doors, we can see ourselves within the story in ways that we never saw before. I've shared some already from the Torah portions themselves that accompany this period, the descriptions of the people, including the president and leaders making the sacrifices to admit unwitting error that leads to consequences on the whole and this punishable transgression of not acting on information provided. I've shared how the golden calf teaches us ways to spend our time that connect us to the earth and to self-reliance and to service. And I've shared what it means that plagues demonstrate the strengths or weaknesses of society. Entering this week, another week of this experience, and the Seder is just behind us, we have an opportunity to see ourselves as if we are coming out of Mitzrayim in ways that we've never had before, at least in my lifetime. And we have an opportunity to feel that, fulfill that Mitzvah, seeing ourselves going through the experience in a way different than maybe we've treated the words of Torah previously. So I'm going to share just a few observations, three, that I've seen in the text and new this year and during this past week that are new for me to see myself that way. The first is my experience of the food of Pesach, that we are returning to eating lechem oni, the bread of the humble, the bread of the, the food of the poor person. It's never been like this for me. We are graced with a tradition brilliant enough to make the main holidays of our people experiential. Sukkot with living outside in nature, and Pesach with a stripped down diet that removes the puff uppenness of leaven in order to reduce our puff upedness. So we go from the arrogance and indulgence that freedom gives rise to, unintended, to the humility and simpleness of our roots. I often relate to our Passover diet in profound ways, but this year we are experiencing a taste, pun intended, just a taste, just a taste really, of real oni, the humility of the poor person, that the food is helping us to re-experience what it means in just a little bit to be poor. We, of course, live in a society in which a massive percentage of the produce we grow never makes it to the grocery store because it's too unattractive to sell. The challenges we face of food insecurity all around us are met with chronic indifference, really arrogance, when much of our produce is thrown out before sale due to unattractiveness, or then from our tables and pantries for the same reason. On this Passover, just the other day, I savored the flavor of a carrot. And I said, Lynn, this is a delicious carrot. Where did you get this from? And she told me that it was really quite ancient (laughs) and had gone back weeks and weeks and weeks. But she didn't throw it away. And there, shaving out the outside parts that were severely unattractive, she put it on the table. And I found it delicious. We are eating all the parts of potatoes and other foods that we would have well trimmed off. We are eating salad and we are grateful for it that previously, I confess, I would have thrown out and just bought more. We are raiding our pantries and Lynn has devised some amazing meals out of whatever we have. And though this is only a small taste of what for mean, we are given this gift of connecting to our ancestors that I've never experienced before. It's making soup from a stone. It's becoming closer to the earth. It's becoming closer to God. It's becoming less puffed up. The second thing is that every year we are following the story in the text we wonder why we have these sudden, jarring juxtapositions of plague with our borrowing silver and gold from the Egyptians. Indeed, this jarring juxtaposition occurs right before the tenth plague, the one that we are inescapably seeing ourselves as experiencing now. One more of these plagues, Avi, I will bring. Adonai said to Moshe, I will bring but one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon all of Egypt. And after that, he shall let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you out of here once and for all. And tell the people, borrow each man from his neighbor and each woman from hers objects of silver and gold. And the Lord disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people. In past years, I've viewed this juxtaposition through many lenses, such as the political topic today of reparations, or just through the way money works, coming from the Egyptians and eventually ending up plating our mishkan, just as Korok's gold pans of rebellion become holy, all kinds of interesting ways of tracing the money. But this year, I see our own journey in it. The 10th plague, plague itself has revealed directly the moral dimension of money, nakedly and profoundly all around us. As institutions face failure, they are affected by a massive question so many are trying to avoid. Do we have to return money in which case we as an institution might die, or can we keep it? Is that not reliving the Egyptians question? Can we keep this money that rightfully belongs to the unpaid work of our slaves because doesn't handing it over mean our ruin? Today I've watched as forcibly closed preschools to just take one example for face a simple question. Do we really have to send an email offering to return months of tuition? Or can we just, you know, wait and see, and hope maybe nobody says anything, or we come back. Some have sent work home to prove their worth to families, or we could say out of their kindness. But realistically, in order to avoid the question. But it's one thing to have Zoom classes for seven-year-olds, worksheets for parents to administer. It's another thing, obviously, to have a preschool whose very existence is about childcare charge parents with helping their children through assigned projects and making them interact through Zoom. In one account of a mother I read, she said, I just wish the preschool would have just sent an email that said, this is really where we're at. We'll go out of business and our teachers will all be unemployed unless you allow us to keep the tuition you paid. Will you consider it? In other words, revealing the moral dimension to the money openly. She said she and her husband have presented with it that way in the honest human way, and not the way we're so used to it in our society, meaning that fake way that we all pretend is okay. She would have said, we love you and yes, keep it, but also be honest and say that the summer has, it's come and the childcare has stopped. Another parent from the preschool said that she has been financially devastated by the virus. And so she needs her money back. And while she would love to be able to give it, she'd like to be given the moral choice So she can say, I'd love to, but I'm not in that position either. I'm in the same position as you. So can we talk openly about it? For an article by a young father in the Toronto area, he's been having sleepless nights. He's stressed, irritable and emotional because he can't pay the rent. Now, in that area in Canada, He's been given by the government $2,000 a month, which is extraordinary to keep going through the crisis. But with the high cost of rent in Toronto, he's not able to pay it. He says his little children come up to him and they want to. They say, Daddy, it's time to dance. And their mother shoes them away. Says, Daddy needs some time alone. He says our income was at its highest it had ever been in 2019. We still had the daily expenses, the childcare costs, the student loans and the debts." but we wanted our small boys to have a backyard. And we knew if we budgeted carefully, we'd be able to do that. So they moved. Now as a mental health strategist and a speaker, my income mostly comes from conferences and corporate training, but all of it has been canceled all the way through September. I've went from having a healthy stream of income to absolutely nothing. And my first reaction was disbelief and then came guilt and regret. I should have saved more. I should not have spent so much. I should have seen this coming. I'm a failure. The $2,000 enough while we're grateful for it only costs, covers us our bills and the cost of food, but not enough for the rent. As I said, his wife shields the boys from him so they don't see what's going on with his stress. He became a mental health counselor, we learn at the end of the article because he himself has suffered terribly from suicidal depression for all his entire life. But he has come through that and he has embraced life, but this is a challenge like no other. So he wrote an email to his landlord. He said, I'm really, really sorry. I made a contract with you and I feel terrible that I can't honor it. I have no income anymore and I'm not sure what to do. I know that we have to move out and I will find a small place that we can afford on, but I'm worried you're going to sue me because the contracts in Canada are very specific. And he says, we love it here, but you need to know that I can't pay you and we don't intend to stay without paying. The landlord wrote back right away, 1 AM. Hi Mark. First, I would like to thank you for your transparency and for the heads up you're giving me here. Second, I'd like to assure you that during these difficult times, our relationship is way beyond a landlord-tenant one. We're all humans. We're all together in this unprecedented time to support each other. But as the article goes on, we find out that he says, I will take your security deposit and your last month's rent and use that for three months. But I have to tell you that I'm a real estate agent and there are no houses selling now. And I have no work at all. And my only income is from my couple of rental properties. So unfortunately, if you did stay long-term without paying, I then myself would go into ruin. I was not hoping for that answer from the landlord, but it was a reality that's reflected in the preschool discussion. What this plague has done, and maybe it helps us understand and actually relive this juxtaposition of plague and the transfer between your neighbor and you of money, of us, right before the 10th plague. It's revealing the moral dimension of money. It's revealing our relationship to each other and its involvement. And it asks us to be transparent and honest. And we're reading it at the same time as we've been reading the sacrifices of Leviticus. And never before in my adult life have they come alive so much. Those who are thankful for having enough, tell the Levite, Todah, thanks to God, and share what they have with others who are not in the position of gratitude because they are in the position of needing the others to share. Like the jarring juxtaposition of the gold transfer and the 10th plague, plague reveals the moral dimension of our financial interactions. And I think that's a good thing and a powerful thing. And finally, I've often avoided another problem in the text. We all know that there is no angel of death in the Exodus narrative. And Chadgadya's tale of God vanquishing the angel of death is wishful thinking. The text states that the plague and God are the same, and the blood of the doorpost is meant to provide a sign so that the plague halts. As Richard Elliott Friedman tells us, it should be translated, not that the plague passes over, but that the plague halts at our homes. In this sense, it's not a silly story about how plagues can choose whom they affect, and God somehow is picking and choosing the innocent from the culpable. God does not. God is the entire system we live in itself, There is nothing outside of God. So, of course, when things become unbalanced, terrible things happen, and they don't distinguish the innocent from somehow the guilty. It actually doesn't say that God saved the Israelites from the 10th plague. As if we are picked out separately, God says, a dog should not snarl at the Israelites, and then says, get in your homes. The 10th plague doesn't avoid Israelites because we are worthy. It is our sheltering in place that's meant to preserve us and as our own are dying today or will die, we see ourselves in the story realistically and not in its eviscerated version we have been telling. Text does not say no Israelites died. Text does not say God distinguishes between Jews and non-Jews. The text states that God tells us sheltering in place is our best method for halting the plague, but it never states Jews will not die. And this brings us to today's Haftarah, the famous statement from Ezekiel that the resurrection of our society into what it's meant to be rather than what it has become involves somehow a vision of the resurrection of the bones of the dead. We know, of course, of the debate between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehuda in Masachet Brachot. Are these bones that come out of the ground supposed to be a vision of a future resurrection that is physical, says Rabbi Eliezer, and Rabbi Yehuda says, come on, it's a parable and it's meant to be read that way. And certainly Ezekiel doesn't seem to envision it as about the resurrection of the dead. But what it brings to me living through this Passover as me, myself coming out of Egypt and as us getting ready to do, not getting ready, we're doing shivas tomorrow night and Monday night and they are continuing and they will increase is a memory that this was not the bad Egyptians were killed and the good Israelites were spared, but that good Israelites perished too in the plague, and that we carried our bones with us to the Holy Land and we didn't leave them behind. And the resurrection of those who will not make it through, it has to do with our service and changing our society so it is different, and that is the future society Ezekiel is calling us toward, changing our society so that their sacrifices are not in vain, and the messages we have been receiving will be made alive in this time and in the future. Shut sure, up, sure.